One of the big themes throughout the whole book of Judges is how in seasons of great need, God rose up these heroic leaders known as judges to meet Israel's need at those strategic times. Throughout the book of Judges, we have this great theme of God at these critical times raising up heroic leaders to meet a need. And these heroic, spirit-anointed leaders were known as judges. And we've already seen several of them so far, and we'll see more. What we have tonight is something different. We have tonight a leader who wasn't really called of the Lord. We have a leader who wasn't really anointed with the Holy Spirit. We have a leader who was self-appointed and self-willed in the exercise of his leadership. And you're going to see quite a contrast tonight between the kind of godly leadership that we've seen before. Not perfect by any means, but much more godly leadership that we saw with previous judges and the man we see tonight, the man Abimelech. Verse 1. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel might reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, was actually the son of Gideon. Jerubbabel and Gideon, it's two different names for the same guy. Now, he was not the clear successor to his father's place of leadership. Please remember, at this time when God would raise up a heroic leader to meet a need, he was not establishing a kingly office in the land. The the, the son of Gideon was not necessarily to be a leader for Israel. The son of Samson, the son of Barak, the son of other judges were not necessarily to be. This was no kind of hereditary leadership. God called Gideon. God filled Gideon with the Spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about his son, right? But yet Gideon had an established place of leadership over the people of Israel for so long that it was natural in the minds of many of the people But especially it was natural in the minds of Gideon and Abimelech himself that he would succeed his father. By the way, Gideon named his son Abimelech. And do you remember what the name Abimelech means? We mentioned it last week. My father a king. Okay, that's... It's bad. (laughs) Now, there were 69 other sons of Gideon. Gideon was a polygamous man. He had several wives and concubines. All in all, he had 70 sons. Every one of those 70 sons thought that in some way, in some manner, they might succeed their father in office and in the privileges of leadership. Because please remember, Gideon made a pretty nice living off of his place of leadership at Israel. And so they thought that they might inherit the same thing. So Abimelech goes to his mother's side of the family and he persuades them to support him. Now, though Gideon had many wives and many sons, 
by this particular mother, he only had one son. So there was only one son of Abimelech's mother who was a descendant of Gideon. So he says, I want you men of Shechem to support me against all my other half-brothers. And verse 3 says that their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech. At the city of Shechem, Abimelech convinced his brothers on his mother's side, or actually his mother's side of the family, to support him as a king over his brothers on his father's side. So the men of Shechem agreed to this. And then look at what happens in verses 4 and 5. You can hardly believe this. By the way, this is one of the startling things about the book of Judges. is how brutally honest it is. This is no heroic story of how great Israel and all its leaders were. This is flat out ugly. Look at verses 4 and 5. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Bereth with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men. And they followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. So the men of Shechem, in order to show their support of, of, of Abimelech, They said, fine, we'll give you money. And they got the money from an idolatrous temple. And they took that money and they gave it to Abimelech. And what did Abimelech do with it? He hired worthless men, worthless and reckless men, the text tells us. And he hired them to go out and murder all of his half-brothers. And they would have murdered all of them except one of them named Jothan escaped. You see, basically what he was doing was something that was the custom for ancient leaders in that part of the world at that time. It was customarily, when you came to the throne, the first thing you did was wipe out anybody who might make a claim against you, right? So you murder all your brothers. That's exactly what he did. And isn't it awesome to read there, verse 5, and I mean awesome in a horrible way. He killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, and he did it all on one stone. Therefore, Abimelech killed all of his brothers except one with the support of his relatives on his mother's side. The men of Shechem supported that plan because it was good for them, not because it was morally right. Verse 6, And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. It's almost hard to tell who's worse here. Who's worse? Is Abimelech, that murderous man, with the blood of all of his half-brothers on his hands? This is his own relatives responsible for their murders. That blood is on his hand. Who's worse, Abimelech himself or the men of Shechem who funded it and supported it? There's wickedness all about There's wickedness in the leader, Abimelech. There's wickedness in the men who supported him and rose him to power, the men of Shechem. This was an ungodly leader given to an ungodly people who rejected God's leadership over the nation. And then they embraced a cruel and a brutal man. It's very fascinating in in an ironic way. Verse 6 tells us that they did this beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. Abimelech's coronation, although I almost hesitate to call it a coronation because it wasn't a legitimate coronation. 
God never recognized the crown upon Abimelech's head. He was a counterfeit king, a pretended king. But, but that coronation, such as it was, that laying of the crown upon the head of Abimelech, it happened at a specific place. It happened at the same tree where Joshua had solemnly placed a copy of the law of God. It's right there recorded for us in Joshua chapter 24, verse 26. Right there at that tree. I don't know if it was in a special box, in a special case. I don't know how it was. But right there at that tree, they placed a copy of the law of God. And it was right there at that same tree that Abimelech, that man with murderous blood on his hand, had a crown put on his head by the men of Shechem, a whole nother set of murderous people. Now, can you imagine this? The word of God is right there beside them, and they're ignoring it. Boy, this this only applies to ancient Israel, doesn't it? Isn't this us today? Do, Do we not have the word of God right with us? Many of you, You carry a copy of the Bible with you every day on your uh, telephone or PDA, right? Your smartphone. You've got it with you all the time. And it's a good thing. I'm all for people having the Bible with them. I'm all with the Bible being all around us. That's a great thing. But, But not if you blatantly ignore it all the time. I mean, could you imagine how the Word of God testified against what they were doing? How the Word of God cried out against the murder and the avarice and the lust for power on behalf of both Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The word of God was right there, but they flaunted it. Now, verse 7. Now, when they told Jotham, remember Jotham? He's the one who survived. When they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. And he said to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men and go to sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let Fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Jotham comes in their midst and speaks forth this interesting parable, the parable of the trees. This man, who was the only surviving son of Gideon, who escaped the massacre at the stone. He tells this parable to rebuke the men of Shechem for their choice of Abimelech as a king. He makes this speech from the top of Mount Gerizim, which is a very interesting place because that's the mountain from which Israel heard the blessings of God pronounced. But Jotham didn't have a word of blessing. He had a word of warning, did he not? And he came and he told them in this parable about these trees that went forth to anoint a king over them. That's in verse 8. 
See, in the parable that Jotham told, the worthy trees, the olive tree, that's a worthy tree. The fig tree, that's a worthy tree. The, the, the vine, that's a worthy plant, at least. You wouldn't call it a tree. But none of them, they wanted to be king. But the unworthy bramble agreed to be a king. A bramble is just a big thorn bush. And the promise of the bramble, did you see the promise the bramble made in verse 15? The bramble says, take shelter in my shade. That's supposed to be ironic and ridiculous. Have you ever seen a thorn bush? There's not a lot of shade from a thorn bush, is there? And it's certainly not going to offer any shade to a tree. It's meant to sound ridiculous. But then he says in verse 15, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. The bramble warned them that he would be an oppressive ruler and he would destroy anybody who disagreed with him. That was Jotham's warning. He said, men of Shechem, you've chosen an unworthy, an ungodly man in Abimelech to, to, uh, to rule over you. This is a man with blood on his hands. And you're going to find that he's an unworthy ruler. He says, anybody who disagrees with him, anybody who opposes him, fire will come out of them and devour even the cedars of Lebanon, which were renowned as mighty trees, such as the great redwoods of California. I want you to notice something here. It really causes us to reflect something upon leadership. One test of the character of a man or a woman, especially a leader, one test of their character is to see how they treat people who disagree with them. If the only desire when somebody disagrees with them, if the only desire is to destroy those, then they're a lot like the bramble, right? You disagree with me, fire's going to come out of me and destroy you, as it would destroy a mighty tree like the cedar of Lebanon. Friends, can I just say, that's an unworthy leader. A leader has to be able to say, you can disagree with me without becoming my enemy. You can disagree with me and not be in opposition to me. I may not agree. I may not take your opinion or your counsel, but I don't regard you as an enemy for disagreeing with me. That's counter to the attitude of the bramble. You can think of a bramble, a thorn bush, right? It has plenty of good points, but no real substance for good, right? People aren't looking to plant thorn bushes in their gardens, right? They just grow up all on their own. Well, verse 16, let's let Jotham apply the parable. He says, now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity, remember, here he's speaking to the men of Shechem. If you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jerubbabel in his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he's your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. You see, I like what he says there in verse 16. 
He says, if you have acted in truth and sincerity. Now he's raising that point merely for the sake of argument. He did not believe that 68 of his brothers were murdered for the sake of truth and sincerity. But he's saying, if that were the case, then you could be honored. But you won't be honored. But rather, you have supported this man. You have supported Jerubbabel simply because, excuse me, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, verse 18, simply because he is your brother. The real reason they did it was not because Abimelech was a godly leader, not because he was a good man, not because he was a moral man, but simply because he was their brother, even though he was born from only a maidservant to Gideon. And then in verse 20, he makes this pronunciation, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. You men of Shechem, because of your desire for an ungodly leader, You're only going to get hurt yourself by that leader. And I'll just tell you right now, this is how the rest of the chapter is going to play out. The rest of the chapter is going to play out how the men of Shechem fulfill this bitter prophecy laid upon them by uh, Jotham here at this place. So verse 22. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the crime done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided them in the killing of his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told Abimelech. Isn't this fascinating? I think the first fascinating thing there is in verse 23, where there's a mention of three years. Jotham gave this word. You might say that Jotham's word was certainly a warning, and you could even call it a prophecy from the Lord. As it's going to be turned out, it's going to be demonstrated to be a true word from God. But let's just call it a warning right now. You know, for three years, that warning wasn't fulfilled. Now, I don't know. Does three years seem like a long time to you? Kind of does to me. If somebody warned me about something three years ago and nothing happened for three years, I'd be inclined to say, ah, oh, what a clown. The guy was wrong, right? Let me tell you something. God has the long-term view in mind, does he not? I wonder. I wonder if there's not things right now that God hasn't warned you about a year ago, two years ago. Three years ago. And it hasn't come crashing down upon your head yet. And you've just kind of told yourself, well, I guess that wasn't the warning of the Lord to me. Can I just tell you, God is not in a hurry. And if three years go by, don't think that God has ignored it. I can imagine all these men of Shechem saying, ah, that that Jotham, what a clown, what a joker. He didn't have any word from that warning wasn't from God at all. Look, uh, three years have gone by and nothing's happened. But then what happened at the end of three years? God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Now, you you might be saying, oh, this is so cruel of God to do this. Why why was God doing it? I'll tell you why God would do it. This was the judgment of God against Abimelech and against the men of Shechem. And God was going to do it by stirring up a spirit of ill will. You say, oh, it's so unfair. God should never do that. Please, please, people. Does anybody here for a moment think that Abimelech and the men of Shechem were trying really hard to serve God? 
Oh, they were really trying to love and honor God with everything they had. But no, God wouldn't allow them. And he sent a spirit of ill will in between them. No, not for a minute. These were men who disobeyed God. They hated God. They, they, they were rejecting God. These were men with the blood of 68 murders on their hands that they hadn't confessed or repented of. And God had not forgotten the blood of those 68 dead sons of Gideon was crying up to heaven from earth. And God heard it. And God said, as my judgment, I'll give you guys what you want. Your corrupt hearts want to be separated from me. I'll do it. I'll separate you from me. And he sent a spirit of ill will between the men of Abimelech, excuse me, the men of Shechem and Abimelech. And so what did they do? Verse 25 tells us that they set men in ambush and they robbed all who passed by. Prompted by the spirit of ill will, the men of Shechem set ambushes against the mountain roads. They hoped to disrupt the trade routes that profited Abimelech. So what happened? Verse 26. Now Gal... The son of Ebed came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from the vineyards and trod them and made merry. And they went to the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Do you see this drunken banquet, right? And this man, Gaal, who is raised up as a leader in Shechem, and there he is, they're toasting one another, they're drunk at the thing, and now Gaul is boasting, right? Well, who is this Abimelech? He's nothing. You know, Abimelech, increase your army and come out after me. Come on, verse 29, he says, make your army even bigger, I can take you on. And this arrogant, might I say it, stupid leader is going to be set up for the destruction of Shechem and eventually the destruction of Abimelech himself. Well, this fellow that he mentioned, Zebul, in the previous verse, he gets wind of this, verse 30. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gal, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, take note, Gal, the son of Ebed and his brothers have come to Shechem. And here they are fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. Well, this fellow Zebul is sort of the city manager on behalf of Abimelech. And when this man Gaul rises up and speaks his proud, boastful, arrogant words against Abimelech, what does Zebul do? Well, Zebul rats him out right away, right? Sends word to Abimelech. Well, you can't. So this is guy Gaul's taking over here. March out against him. Assemble the people. I'll do what I can on I end. My end. Verse thirty-three. You shall rise early and rush upon the city. Let's do it. Let's do a surprise attack against the rebels of Shechem. Verse thirty-four. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaul saw the people who were with, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. 
This is classic. But Zebel said to him, you see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. Now, I imagine that Gaul is pretty hungover here, right? Okay? He's a little foggy in the head. And he's looking out and he's saying, hey, aren't those troops coming against us? And Zebel says, no, that's just shadows, you see, going on. So Gaul spoke again and said, see, people are coming down from the center of the land and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zebel said to him, where indeed is your mouth now with which you said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are these not the people whom you despise? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So Gaul went out, leading the men of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Arumna, and Zebul drove out Gaul and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. Isn't that a classic line in verse 38? Where's your mouth now? You know, Zebul suckers him in, right, to not do anything against the troops when they're marching down upon the city until it's too late. Once Zebul sees that it's too late, he says to Gaul, okay, big mouth, what are you going to do against these guys now? Last night you were crying out to Abimelech, bring it on, Abimelech, increase your troops, come out against me. Well, now they're against you, Mr. Big Mouth, what are you going to do? Shechem says, well, I'll go out to battle. And so he leads the people out and battle the best he can, but they get whooped. And that's all there is. That's the end of Gaul. Verse 42, I was going to make a joke about Caesar conquering Gaul, but it's a little obscure right there. Verse 42, thank you to the one person who that connected with out there. And it came about on the next day that people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them, attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with them rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed against all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. With the resistance of Gaul defeated... Abimelech found it easy to establish his control over the city of Shechem again. Both outside and inside the city, they effectively crushed the opposition and they conquered it. Verse 35 telling us that he took the city and killed the people who were in it. He demolished the city and sowed it with salt. He turned his fury against the people of Shechem and killed as many of them as he could and demolished their city. Now, friends, isn't this the great problem with the men of Shechem? They supported a violent, immoral man like Abimelech to power. And you know what? His violence and immorality was turned against them. Surprise! That's exactly what happened. Look, that story has been written throughout history, right? You support the revolutionary. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, well, what flashes into my mind is the common picture of the Russian Revolution, right? What a dramatic fulfillment this was in history. There they were all supporting the, the revolutionaries come to power, and immediately, what do the revolutionaries do? They turn upon everybody who might threaten them, even people who supported them. You support the violent, immoral man who comes to power, guess what? He's going to turn his violence and immorality upon you. That's exactly what Abimelech did, and he destroyed the city of Shechem. Verse 46, 
Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Bareth. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went out to Mount Zalman. He and all the people were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees. And he took it and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the people who were with him, What you've seen me do, make haste and do as I've done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bough and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. I want to make clear, we're in the book of Judges, right? This man is not called a judge. This man was a counterfeit, ungodly leader, self-appointed, Uh, supported by worthless people. And now God was using him first to bring judgment upon the people of Shechem. Now, for many of you, you can't understand this. Well, listen, why would God use Abimelech to bring judgment upon the men of Shechem? Isn't Abimelech even worse than the people of Shechem? And the answer to that question is yes. Don't worry about Abimelech. God's going to deal with Abimelech. Friends, isn't it funny? That sometimes God will use a worse people to judge a people. That's exactly what he was doing here in the case of the men of Shechem. So much so that Abimelech says, okay, all these people are the survivors from the city of Shechem. What have they done? They've secured themselves up in this strong tower. You know what we're going to do? We're going to burn them out. And I'm going to incinerate a thousand men and women in that tower. And that's exactly what he did. You have to say, I give a little bit of props to Abimelech as a leader. Because you know what he did? When it came down to burn down that tower, he cut down a branch of a tree. He put it on his shoulder and he cried out to everybody. He said, do what I've done. That's what a leader does, isn't it? He just calls out to people and says, hey, do what I've done. I'm doing it. You do it too. But he did it for wickedness and for evil. And all the people of the tower, Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Isn't it? A graphic fulfillment of the warning of Jotham, right? Didn't he tell the men of Shechem this is what was going to happen? That fire was going to come out of the bramble and destroy them? And that's exactly what happened at the Tower of Shechem. Let me tell you something. For the people of Shechem, even a secure tower could not protect them. But I've got good news for you people. There is a more secure tower than the Tower of Shechem. Can I tell you about that tower? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Forget the tower of Shechem. Look to Jesus, our refuge. Look to Jesus, our tower. Look to what it says in Psalm 61, 3. For you have been a shelter to me, a strong tower from the enemy. God is our refuge. God is our protection. And ladies and gentlemen, these poor people of Shechem led astray by their leaders. They had forsaken the Lord. They were perishing in the temple given to a pagan god. Friends, we, we seek our refuge in the name of the Lord. He is a strong tower that can never be defeated. Well, what about Abimelech? God will take care of him. Look at verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes. And he camped against the Bez and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city. And all the men and the women, all the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in. And they went up to the top of the tower. 
And so Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the tower, door of the tower to burn it with fire. Uh, apparently, he considers himself an expert in tower warfare now, right? I mean, he did it at Shechem. Okay, I'll do it to you guys in Thebes, right? I know how to do it. I'll burn you out. But look what happens here. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Yes. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. So his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. After his brutal victory at the Tower of Shechem, Abimelech thought he knew everything about tower warfare, so he taxed the Bez. When they escaped to their tower, he goes, no problem, I'll do it just like I did it in Shechem. I'll burn him out, and as he's at the base of the tower making the preparations or starting the fire, whatever, what is he doing? A woman drops a stone. Now, it's described as being an upper millstone. You're talking about something maybe a little over a foot long, weighing about five pounds or so. It was the kind of thing on top of another stone that they would use to grind small grain for household use. What does she do with it? She drops it, bammo, right on the guy's head. Crushes his skull. Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it fascinating that there he is in his death, proud until the very end. Verse 54, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. Hey, Abimelech, guess what? A woman killed you. We'll say it. Under the judgment of God, a woman dropped a rock and it landed right on your head. Abimelech considered it more manly to be killed by his own armor bearer, his associate in battle. But you know what? He was still dead. Proud, even in death, he then had to go answer to God for his wicked actions. What comfort was him when he passed from life into eternity and stood at the judgment court of God in the very next moment and God looked upon him and Abimelech said, well, you know, at least it wasn't a woman that killed me. What good does that do you in that moment? You've got the blood of hundreds of people upon your hand thousands even. And in your wickedness, you wicked leader, you now have to give account before God. This should give pause to anybody who's a leader, especially among the people of God. Leaders among the people of God need to have a special fear of the Lord. They really do. They really need to have a special reverencing of God. And when a man or a woman gets unanchored from that kind of foundation, they can drift aside until only God can deal with them. And let me tell you, my friend, when only God can deal with you, God will deal with you severely. Just think of it. Think of it in your mind's eye. A rock dropping from a long tower and hitting a guy on the head. That's what God has to do to some people to wake them up. Unfortunately, the same blow that wakes them up puts them out. That's exactly what happened to Abimelech. And isn't it interesting that upon one stone he had slain 68 of his brothers. God used a stone upon his own head to bring him to an end of it all. Therefore, it says very appropriately in verse 56, 
Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned upon their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Friends, there's a lot for us to think of here at the end of this chapter. There's one thing I think of is just the importance, the importance for there to be godly leadership among the people of God. You could see it with Gideon. You could see it with Abimelech. Whatever status, whatever power, whatever comfort, it had obviously gone to their heads. And especially exampled and exemplified in Abimelech, he was a wicked and a worthless man, a self-appointed leader. And friends, we just need to pray that God, that God keeps, keeps whatever leaders there are in your life on track with the Lord and humble and deep in the fear of God. Whoever of you, you consider me in some way in your life, a, a spiritual leader, a pastor unto you, I hope that you pray for me. I know many of you do, and it's deeply, deeply moving to me that you do. But I just confess before you that I need it deeply. I want very much to be a godly leader, someone who leads in the fear of the Lord. I look at a man like Abimelech and you think, how can a man go so far off the rails and realize that the capability is within many of us? It's within any of us. But to be kept in the fear of the Lord, oh, that's right where we need to be. And then I take that same warning and I contrast it. And I think of our glorious leader, the chief shepherd, the the, the wonderful chief pastor of any congregation. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ, right? A leader like Abimelech, what does he do? He takes away life. That's all that he did. He took away life. What does a leader like Jesus Christ do? He brings life everywhere he goes. Oh, Jesus, be our leader. Be our shepherd. Be... Unlike the counterfeit king that Abimelech was, Jesus in our midst, be our glorious king. That's what we want. Someone just, Jesus, to be a glorious king in our midst and to exercise his rule. And then I think of one final thought. I think about how Jotham, inspired by the Lord, warned the people of Shechem and warned Abimelech. And they didn't listen. Do you realize that God's warnings in your life, and I trust that the Lord warns you about things from time to time. I trust so. I think, and I apologize if this ruffles a feather here this evening, but I trust that if the Lord loves you, he warns you about some things from time to time. Friends, just recognize there's a big price to pay for ignoring the warnings of the Lord. And I don't know how God brought the warning to you. Maybe he brought it to you in a time of private devotion. Maybe he brought it to you through a message you heard here or someplace else. Maybe he brought it to you through a song you heard on the radio. Maybe he brought that warning to you through a friend. or I don't know how God brought the warning to you, but, but maybe it's time for you to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, is there a warning that you've given to me that I've been ignoring? And just because some months or years or weeks have gone by and, and that warning hasn't proven true yet, I shouldn't ignore it. Instead, I should just humbly, humbly surrender to you tonight and repent and and believe and trust in you all over again. Because your gracious warnings are an invitation for me to get right with you.